Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 16. Denial, Splitting, Projection. The Early Defense Mechanisms. Basically, many of the things that happen in our lives demand a lot of us. Our loved ones, and we too, will all die one day. We develop diseases, get old, are exposed to all kinds of dangers, no matter how much we try to protect ourselves against them. Even everyday life asks a lot of us. We have to do things we don't want to do. We want things we won't get. We worry about things we can't control. Or we get angry at someone without being able to stand up for ourselves. Certainly, there are also many beautiful things in our lives. But for these ugly things, our psyche has some tools at hand that we would like to consider in this and the following episode, so-called defense mechanisms. Psychological defense is one of the core concepts of psychoanalytic theory and has been conceptualized by many researchers. Concepts such as denial, repression, projection, or sublimation have made their way into everyday language. Psychoanalysts have come up with different classifications for defense mechanisms, whereby, as an initial orientation, the distinction between the so-called early and the so-called mature defense mechanisms is helpful. In today's episode, we would like to devote ourselves to the early defense mechanisms. They are called this because they intervene in our psychic life in a rather archaic way and originate in an early period of our mental development. As we will soon hear, they are sometimes quite obvious when observing children, as Anna Freud, Sigmund Freud's daughter, did in her famous book, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense, a classic of psychoanalytic literature. But early defense mechanisms remain meaningful for a lifetime. They are usually based on a so-called process of psychic splitting, whereas more mature defense mechanisms are based on repression. In what follows, we will hear about how this can be understood. Life would probably be very unpleasant, or at least very different, if we were aware at every moment of our impermanence. The fact of death, the uniqueness and transience of every single minute of our life, is something we block out of ordinary, everyday life. Modern civilization has made it possible to push these things far to the edge of our consciousness. Death, unlike in earlier times, is not a reality we face every day, and yet it remains a reality nonetheless. Life is still finite. Everything we are and do is fleeting. Usually, however, we only become aware of this in certain situations for example, on our birthday, or on New Year's Eve. This is probably more of a process of repression. It is a reality that we have in principle acknowledged, but that we push out of our field of vision, preferring instead to deal with other things. And we, at most, acknowledge it as an abstract fact of life that has minimal emotional significance. That is, until it draws near. Unless we are committed to the teaching, live each day as if it was your last, 
we seem to cope quite well through blocking out our impermanence. It is different, though, when a terminally ill patient is confronted with the fact that he will soon die, yet cannot come to terms with his death and the consequences it will have for his family, and thus responds defensively to every attempt his relatives make to talk about it. What are you talking about dying? I'm just visiting the hospital. When I get home, I'll renovate my apartment. If he really feels this way, and completely negates the reality of his situation, one could speak of the defense mechanism of denial. Certain threatening aspects of reality are declared non-existent. They are not only pushed out of sight or reduced of their meaning, but their existence is outright denied. Those people then behave as if what appears clear and evident to everyone else was not there at all. And this they cannot be convinced of either, and are more likely to be frightened or angry if they are forced to acknowledge reality. This example also shows that psychic defense also has a protective function, like protecting the sick person from the terrible fear of death. It concerns an attempt to make something psychologically bearable that cannot be endured. In other words, an attempt at psychic survival in the face of a deadly threat. Most of the time, this form of defense is fragile and split. It is something they know and don't know at the same time. Especially in the face of a threatening reality, does defense become invariably precarious. As the psychoanalyst Kurt Eisler has developed in his writing on the dying patient, hospice nurses and relatives must respect the protective function of the defense. They must not break through violently, while at the same time, they must leave space for a confrontation with reality. However, this probably does not only apply to the urgent encounter with death. On a fundamental level, mental processes are indeed always a struggle with reality, moving along the fine line between what can be acknowledged and accepted. Although what is perhaps distinct among humans is that they don't only have to endure this reality passively, but indeed can also shape it, with certain limitations, of which finitude is one. For a start, defense is, as a concept, not necessarily negative. We are happy if our body is equipped with good defenses, or if our favorite football team can mount a solid defense. Within the realm of the psychological as well, defense primarily refers to all possible functions that help a person to keep threatening, uncomfortable, or unpleasant states at bay, or to make them bearable. Without defense, we would not be able to cope with life, or to put it in psychoanalytic terms, defense unburdens the eagle. To a certain extent, Defense belongs to that structural part of our psyche that gives us security, stabilizes us in life, becomes a part of ourself. This can happen at very different levels. The rawer and more existential a threat is, the rougher the means of psychological defense often are. A kind of gross intrusion into the perception of reality, which in the service of the ego is distorted. 
It is also a typical way in which children deal with incidents that are difficult to handle, such as feelings of guilt. No, it's not like that, even when everyone else sees it that way. For this reason, it also counts among the early defense mechanisms. A very basic function of the defense mechanism is the so-called stimulus barrier. The psyche protects itself against environmental stimuli that are too strong and intense, but also against overly intense stimuli from within one's own body and against one's own feelings. A trauma is not just a bad event, but rather an event that breaks through our psychic protection. Trauma comes from Greek and means wound. In other words, something that has penetrated our skin, which can vary greatly from person to person, as indeed some people have a very delicate and others a very thick skin. It is just the same with our psychic skin. Certain events exceed our mental capacity, are too severe and too difficult for us to bear. For example, being involved in a serious traffic accident in which people die. At just this point is where our early defense mechanism may, under some circumstances, come into play. It is known from those involved in accidents, even from those who have not suffered any physical damage themselves, that sometimes they can no longer remember the circumstances of the accident, or that they experience the event as if they were in a trance, as if they had not really been there themselves. They lose their sense of time or a feeling for their own body or their own person. Some accident victims, but also people who experience other terrible incidents, wander around aimlessly after the event, only coming to hours later in the hospital, where they are then often flooded with massive and strongly fluctuating emotions. This is also referred to as disassociative symptoms. And although these symptoms may sound bizarre at first, they do, on a very fundamental level, serve as psychic defense. Disassociative means splitting off, i.e. the ability of our psyche to split off one part of its experience during threatening situations so as to protect the other part. We can illustrate the mechanism with the following picture. A village is situated close to the sea and has therefore built a dike, our psychic protection. But now there is a storm surge, so massive that the dike bursts at one point and the water floods into the land. In order to save what can be saved, the inhabitants of the village give up one part of the land, leaving it to the sea, while retreating to another higher part and securing it with sandbags. In this way, they split off one part of the country to protect the other. In the event of trauma, our psychological defense system acts in just this way. It is necessary for those involved in the accident to distance themselves from the absolute horror of the experience during the initial shock. Only once they are in a safe environment and have people around them who listen to them and are there for them, can they possibly reconnect to and feel that which they have just experienced. However, this may not be possible, and there is a risk that a trauma disorder will develop as a result. But we will hear more about that another time. Of course, 
psychological defense does not only take place when confronted with a traumatic event. Another early defense mechanism is very common. It too has to do with splitting. I will illustrate it with the following example. You may consider for yourself what the defense is. The division head of a company has called an important meeting. All employees are present at the agreed-upon time, except for the boss. Only once an employee calls him does he remember the meeting and arrives significantly late. He apologizes cursorily and begins the meeting. In the next few minutes, in front of the assembled team, he criticizes specific employees unusually harshly for their work performance and for their failures, and so they feel very small and humiliated. What is the function of the boss's defense? Maybe someone considers the fact that the boss had forgotten the meeting, so he, perhaps, didn't even want to go to the meeting. That would be a classic Freudian slip. But in this case, it is about the second part of the story. The boss is the only one who is late for the meeting and is exposed in front of the group as someone who is not completely reliable, as someone who forgets a meeting that he has arranged himself. This brings him into massive conflict with his self-image and perhaps his unappeasable ideal self as an outstanding and flawless department head. He resorts to a psychological mechanism that is based on splitting. He attacks his employees, and precisely for the flawed qualities that he cannot tolerate in himself. That is, he splits off the unbearable part of himself and blames it on someone else, his employees. He now makes them feel what he himself does not want to feel, exposed in front of the group as unreliable, delinquent, and embarrassed. Out of the, I feel bad because I did something, becomes, I make you feel bad because you did something. That which is bad is only outside with the other, where it can be fought with furious rage. The good remains inside with the self, a premature way to establish mental order and deal with difficult affects. In psychoanalysis, this mechanism is called projection, i.e., the relocation of unpleasant parts of the self onto other people. So much has been researched and written about projection and psychoanalysis that at least one episode should be devoted to it. It is in the school of Melanie Klein in particular, the so-called Kleinians, that projection plays a central role in understanding psychic processes. Even certain political or social phenomena can be described well using the defense mechanism of projection. Anti-Semitism, for example, is largely based on projections, albeit a very complex phenomena brewed from many psychological and social ingredients. The anti-Semite relocates their own bad traits and desires. Greed for money, lecherousness, aggressiveness, vindictiveness, desire for murder, onto the Jews. They now represent the evil that the anti-Semite has cast out of themselves in which now and others can be fought against. Freud called projection to be in pursuit and to persecute one's own desires and others, and persecute can be taken quite literally here. Naturally, this form of projection has still other psychological advantages, such as being able to blame others for your own failure. The anti-Semite says, roughly, it is not I who has failed, and who is at fault if I do not find a job. 
occupy only a low rank, obey the boss, and must suffer humiliation? It is the Jews who meet to conspire, who dominate the world economy. Behind the anti-Semites' hatred of the Jews, there is usually an unstable self-worth and an existential self-hatred, which is thrust onto others but actually remains latently present. In fact, the Fuhrer of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany ended in a kind of proliferation of self-destruction. To a considerable degree, defense mechanisms can also accompany mental illness. It doesn't have to be as vicious as with the anti-Semite, which may be more of a form of destructive narcissism. On the contrary, in the case of mental illness, it is usually such that the person who suffers most is the patient themselves. For example, the defense mechanism of projection is an essential component of borderline disorders. Characteristic of borderline disorders is that their relationship to others is very much liable to splitting. Those suffering from a borderline disorder have a tendency to completely idealize those close to them, to attribute to them all that is good, redeeming, and helpful. Or, on the contrary, to completely denigrate other people, to perceive them as exclusively evil, bad, unreliable, etc. Sometimes the idealization and debasement of one and the same person can alternate in rapid succession. But often enough, the defense also breaks down, and all that is bad recoils back into one's own ego, which is then perceived exclusively as evil, which one hates and wants to destroy. To understand borderline disorders, it is important to understand the mechanism of so-called projective identification, which Melanie Klein and her successors have worked out, but we will have to hear more about that in another episode. There are, by the way, also good-natured forms of projection, as when parents can delight in their children's life journey and success, can see a part of their own wishes fulfilled in their children, being young themselves once again, falling in love, pursuing a certain career. This form of projection can strengthen and stabilize the child in the process of developing their identity, as long as this does not go too far, and the fulfillment of parental wishes becomes a life mission for the child. And finally, another point that is important for understanding defense mechanisms. In psychology, when it comes to dealing with an illness, one speaks of coping. As a technical term in psychology, coping describes the capacity to manage, or specific strategies for managing, difficult situations in life, such as a severe illness, such as talking with others about it, coming to grips with the question of meaning, and, on the whole, adjusting one's life and personality to the new situation. Defense means, by contrast, that the difficult situation is, for the time being, withheld from consciousness. As in the example of the terminally ill patient, who altogether denies that there is even a fatal disease. Defense mechanisms usually try to maintain an earlier psychological balance even if it is necessary to thus block out or distort parts of reality. Coping, on the other hand, is aimed at confronting this reality and dealing with it positively. So one could say that someone who fights off an illness too strongly has no chance of overcoming it. When it comes to a severe event in one's life, defense mechanisms are necessary, 
especially in moments of shock, surprise, or when overpowered by an event. They help to manage the enormous fear that goes along with a dangerous illness. Thus, in the short term, defense mechanisms are helpful. Ideally, however, they will in the long term transition into coping strategies, overcoming illness and coming to terms with reality. And reality is something that, in the end, we can never quite completely circumvent. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.